You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan on the 25th day of May 2015. This is another edition of Questions for Corbett, that monthly podcast series where you ask the questions and I supply some answers. And as always, there's many different ways to get your questions in. Of course, you can contact me via Twitter at Corbett Report. You can leave a video message, a video question on YouTube or any other video sharing platform. But if you do, please make sure to message me directly to let me know it's there. You can, of course, contact me via the contact form on CorbettReport.com. And on that contact form, you'll also find a a SpeakPipe application by which you can record an audio message for me, which can then be played on the podcast. Uh, Or, perhaps most importantly, priority is given to Corbett Report members who log into the website and leave their question in the comment section of these QFC podcasts. So, that's a lot to get through, a lot of different ways to get to me, and as always, way too many questions to answer them all, but I do read everything that comes in, I appreciate all the questions, please keep them coming in, and I will get to as many as I can in each and every edition of this podcast. Before we get into the questions, I should make a note from last month's edition of this series, Enlightenment Under the Cherry Blossoms, where we were talking about the coming crackdown on the alternative media and the seizure of IP addresses and ways to get around that type of censorship. One thing that I forgot to mention, but one kind listener um, managed to remind me via the contact form, was torrents. Of course, we can use torrents to seed this information out there and really keep it perpetuating for as long as people want it to perpetuate. Uh, There's really no way to censor that once it's out there. It's the uh, genie out of the bottle. So, Torrance, another great way to do it. And uh, there was a Corbett Report member. I'm not sure if he's still around, but there was a Corbett Report member who was torrenting my various work. You can find, for example, in the comment section of the Federal Reserve documentary at CorbettReport.com slash Federal Reserve, a link to the torrents of uh, the MP3 audio and the MP4 video of that Federal Reserve documentary. So that and other things are out there. And if you want to take it upon yourself to go and seed some things out there, please do. This is, again, Creative Commons work. Please spread it any way you can. Get it out to as many people as you can. Torrents, another great way to get around the types of censorship they're going to try to impose more and more stringently in the future. Having said all of that, let's get into the questions, the reason why we're all here, and as always, as I say, we'll start with the priority Corbett Report member questions. First one up comes from Bo Boy, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and my apologies if I'm not, but uh, Bo writes, yet another instance of cop killings has surfaced in my Twitter feed. There may be a chapter in the history books for 2014 and 2015 for the scene of civil unrest. Question, is there an agenda behind manufacturing the negative image of the police force in the minds of the people and vice versa? What are your thoughts on the subject? And a related question from another Corporate Report member, Eli, who writes, I was wondering if you have noticed an intense effort and successful one to pretty much deify the military slash veterans. It makes it extremely hard to talk about anything related to the action of the political system because anything even remotely anti-military or veteran makes you a blasphemer. What are your thoughts on this and how do we go about trying to snap people out of military fever? Personally, I try to point out that the enlisted men are just another victim of the power elite, look at the treatment of vets, etc. But that's not very successful as people are caught up with honoring the military. All right, Bo and Eli, thank you very much for the questions. I think these questions are very much on point, especially as we move into this, right into the midst of the uh, the Jade Helm 2015 uh, fiesta, frenzy, panic that is currently being induced. And uh, it's a very valid question because there is undoubtedly an increase in at least the coverage of these cop killings. And there certainly does seem to be an intensification in in recent years, a demonstrable one, in the glorification of the military under, of course, that banner of honoring the veterans. And, of course, the only way we can honor the veterans is to blindly, unquestioningly support any meat grinder that they are thrown into. On its face, that's a ridiculous proposition, but of course propaganda is always about throwing the most ridiculous ideas in your face and daring you to defy them. Well, 
Luckily, Corbett reporters are the defying sort. So let's uh, do exactly that. Uh, I guess a couple of questions here to sort out. First is, is there an agenda to actually push these types of cops versus public, military versus public ideas? Um, is there an agenda behind this? There certainly is. It's demonstrable in a number of ways, but perhaps the best dictum to follow is that age-old adage of the detective, follow the money. And it's been exposed for some time now, and we can document it in great degree of detail, that yes, there is a concerted effort to militarize local police forces across the United States that is being funded directly by the government. We can take this from a number of places. One place that puts this together in a way that's understandable is ProPublica, which had a report last year, the best reporting on federal push to militarize local police. And it talks about the federal 1033 program, which was a program inserted into the National Defense Authorization Act in the 1990s, and Homeland Security grants. Those two sources are the source for the funding of uh, untold billions in uh, in direct military-type equipment and, and uh, training that has been given to the local police forces in recent years. Uh, for example, the DOD program, known as 1033, has provided $4.3 billion in free military equipment to local police. The 1033 program allows the Pentagon to transfer weapons to local police departments on permanent loan for free. The program first started in the 1990s as a part of an effort to arm police during the drug crisis. So, of course, it's the war on drugs is being used as the, the excuse for funneling billions of dollars in military equipment to local police forces. In fact, where did SWAT teams come from? Again, it's the war on drugs, which was the carte blanche for local police forces to go in and militarize. Now there's also the war on terror, which... Some of it has to be shunted down to the local police level, and uh, and so there's there's that going on. And now with the hyping up of these riots in Ferguson and things like that, which we know, by the way, the money once again is coming from pl uh, places like Soros, who are directly funding these protesters. And again, I'll include links in the show notes so you can find out more about that. So we know that there is this effort right now to intensify things, bring them to a head, as part of I think a dual process. One is the the justification of the further militarization of the police. Hey, look at what's happening in Ferguson and places like this. We need more military equipment. And then the second part is to unveil this to the public because there needs to be a grand unveiling of a new era, a new stage in policing. Of course, we go from, we go from law enforcement to authorities to policing to um, riot crackdown. And each step along that way from from the old 1950s uh, version of uh, the Andy Griffith show or whatever to the current modern image of the police officer in the United States is a vast gulf to be sure. And that has to be done through gradual introduction of various ideas, various memes, various stages. And this is the latest stage where we're seeing these riots that are being induced in order to justify these multi-billion dollar programs to militarize the police. And then I guess related to that, is there an agenda to glorify the military itself and to make it so that anyone who questions that is just unpatriotic. Ooh, what a horrible thing. Oh, it's un-American to question the, the military and what it's doing in various places around the world. Well, again, the answer is yes. And an interesting little nugget that came out recently, uh, just uh, earlier this month, the Pentagon paid 14 NFL teams $5.4 million to salute troops. So this ridiculous practice of everyone salute the, the troops and, you know, put your hand on your heart and pledge your allegiance to this wonderful military. Oh, imagine that. It's actually not a spontaneous uh, development of love for the country. It's actually something that the Pentagon is literally paying the NFL to do. Surprise, surprise. It is paid advertisement, paid propaganda for the military. So I guess the question, the other question here is what do we do about this? How do we D, 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 unplug people from this matrix of propaganda. And I think the interesting part of this is that the military itself doesn't need unplugging from that 
that matrix. Either they know about it and they choose to go along with it, or they know about it and they speak out against it. And as even the government's own figures show, 22 veterans a day now committing suicide, the military knows that what what is happening around the world and the things that they're engaged in are not right. And a lot of them are having serious problems with what's going on, serious PTSD, serious uh, medical issues, and the, the ridiculous Veterans Affairs medical issues continues to come out. The veterans know that the government doesn't care one iota about them as people. They only care about whatever military, geopolitical, economic agenda that that is set out for the military, which is exactly why the military has always been, I think, on the cutting edge of a lot of these things, or at least certain sections of it. It's why Major General Smedley Butler can come out with war is a racket, because he knew he he was a gangster for capitalism, exactly as he said he was, trying to export the uh, the interests of the, uh, the uh, Chiquita Banana Company or whatever around the world. Um, that's exactly what the military knows at the highest levels and with people uh, on the inside. They know that they're involved in these things. Some of them choose to simply... D- the cognitive dissonance is so great and they can't ever question that and that's unfortunate. But there are a lot in the military that know that it's wrong and want to fight against it, which is exactly why Ron Paul, who said end the wars and bring the troops home, was the most popular candidate, received the most donations from active serving military during his presidential campaigns. Why do you think that is? It's because the military knows what's going on. So it's not the military that we need to unplug from that matrix. I think it's the people who support, support the troops, as in support any meat grinder that they're thrown into. And I think we have to point out things like it's the military that supports Ron Paul's agenda of bringing the troops home and things of that nature, the 22 suicides a day, that can perhaps needle their way into the brains of some of these people who have become completely enthralled by the propaganda. It's not a perfect solution, but it's something. Also pointing out the 1033 program and others that are documentably militarizing the police through direct government grants is a good way of needling people uh, in in that part where some people will just go along with it because, oh, it's the cops. We have to support the cops. Well, what does that mean and who is supporting the cops? And I think once we look again, following the money, we can start to deconstruct that agenda. Unfortunately, like so many things, you can lead the horse to water, you can't make it to drink. So there are certain people who are never, ever going to question, fundamentally question that system. And in that case, I mean, I don't think there's anything that, I don't think the onus is on us to make them understand this. If they don't want to, the cognitive dissonance is so great, they're intellectual cowards, what have you. Well, at a certain point, they're a lost cause, and you just got to keep moving on and planting the seeds elsewhere where it will flower. And uh, and I think that's the, the most important part. Don't get disheartened if you can't get one particular person to understand what's going on. I think the better thing to do is to throw the seeds out there, and they will find fertile soil out in the general public amongst a lot of people, and sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. Sometimes people will come back to you years after you tell them something, and now they'll be interested in what you told them, and they'll ask for more information. So be informed, be knowledgeable, have documentation ready, and uh, and spread the seed as far as, you, as far as you can. And I think that's 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 our onus as people who understand this information is to, to put this information out there. What people do with that and how they interpret it is unfortunately up to them. All right, let's move on. Another Corbett Report member question, an interesting one from Buddha Force, who writes, Since you're in Japan, I'm wondering if you have any info on the trust busting that was supposed to happen to the Zaibatsu after World War II. Was it strictly academic like it was in America around the 1900s? I have, I have yet to run across any alternative account of this. Very interesting question, Buddha Force, and uh, I think we'll have to bring most of the viewing public and listening public up to speed on this, because I'm going to assume this is a bit uh, obscure for a lot of listeners out there. For people who don't know, the general crash course, which uh, will obviously not be uh, complete in all the details, but anyway, the general overview is that the Zaibatsu are uh, were family-owned monopoly enterprises that started in the Edo period but really came to fruition in the Meiji period between the Meiji Restoration and the end of World War II in that imperial era of Japan. And these, again, family-owned monopoly enterprises dominated various sections of the uh, the economy. So um, you had uh, uh, Sumitomo and Mitsui and Mitsubishi and uh, the other one of the big four that I can, can't remember because it's not so uh, common to name these days. Uh, and then there were other sort of lesser zaibatsu, but they all dominated certain sectors of the economy. 
And that's how the Japanese imperial economy was structured, um, late 1800s, early 1900s, really, primarily. And so the official story, the story that we're all told, is that in the post-war period, during the American occupation government, the Zaibatsu were disbanded and all of their assets were seized. And we can see that in such things as the, uh, the very interesting documentary um, that came out just recently, Princes of the Yen. Japan is the key to the fate of the Far East. Once again, for the second time in the march of modern history, those words have urgent reality. In order to avert the kind of rural unrest that was helping the communists in China, the Americans initiated the redistribution of land from big landowners to their tenants. The capitalist elite in Japan known as the Zaibatsu, were purged as supporters of a criminal war and prohibited from further business activity. Basically, the, the fascist uh, policies of the 30s that the, the, the reformed fascist bureaucrats could not implement during the war even. Yes. The US occupation managed to complete, like the land reform and right. uh, the Zaibatsu policy. Yeah. yeah, it's a very funny uh, encounter of um, Japanese wartime fascists and uh, American New Dealers. So that's the short version of the official story from Princes of the Yen, an interesting documentary. I don't necessarily agree with everything it says proscriptively, but what it says descriptively about the post-war banking and economic period in Japan is very interesting stuff, and I think some of the only English language uh, material that's out there on this, um, so definitely worth checking into. But anyway, yes, as that indicates, the New Dealers uh, advising the Japanese government made that interesting collusion with the fascists uh, in Japan to finally implement the fascist agenda that had been there for some time to destroy, not destroy these Zaibatsu, but really take them over. I think that was the point of it. Rather than having family-owned monopoly enterprises, they wanted to somewhat widen that pool, but maintain it as a centralized uh, control over the economy, and they were marvelously successful in that. So we saw a transition from the Zaibatsu, the family-owned uh, monopoly enterprises, to a cartelized system of control, where there's there's more room for others to join in at that table. There's shareholder control over these companies, but it's essentially the same companies, and essentially the, the, the monopolistic control is still there. At least the cartel control is still there. And this system actually has a name as well. It's called Keiretsu. And it's in place today. Uh, again, this is not controversial. You can find uh, charts and graphs of this uh, the, the system and how the very same Zaibatsu now just have these different uh, branches. So, um, for example, Sumitomo and Mitsui were two of the original big four Zaibatsu. Well, now you have the Sumitomo Mitsui Banking Corporation is the second largest bank in Japan by assets and one of the largest banks in the world. So, Again, the, the, the control is still there. It's just a question. It's not so much family-owned so much as it's uh, sort of broadened in terms of who can be, sit at that table, but it is still a centralized system of control. So I think it's just more of a cosmetic makeover than anything because at the base, a lot of people didn't even want that changeover to occur. And um, even the official story, again, what you can pick up from Wikipedia is that they started to disband and seize assets and what have you, but... Ultimately, that stopped and they reversed course because they just couldn't fully implement it. So the Zaibatsu are still around, kind of. Technically, it's slightly different uh, setup, but ultimately it amounts to the same thing. A lot more to be said about how the Japanese post-war banking and economic and political history tie into what's happening right now and the coming economic meltdown. A lot of interesting stuff there, but I think we'll have to leave that for another time. Thank you again for that question, Buddha Force. Let's move on to the next question, this time a tweet in from at Britman, who writes, Something I always wondered regarding OKC, was Richard Lee Guthrie's suicide ever deemed valid or credible, or was he killed? Very good question, and for those who know about the OKC case, you will immediately get the the, the, the significance of this question. For those who don't, um, well, I hope you'll be familiar with the idea of Richard Lee Guthrie from my interviews with Jesse Trenadu, whose brother Kenneth Trenadu was killed in a federal holding facility in Oklahoma City in the wake of the OKC bombing. And uh, Jesse Trenadu's story is that he was told um, by, by McVeigh uh, shortly uh, after his brother's death that 
basically he was uh, he was killed because they thought he was John Doe number two, i.e. Richard Lee Guthrie. And uh, there were certain identifying tattoos and uh, and physical description that meant the two people were very similar. So they basically thought he was Richard Lee Guthrie, and they tortured him to death trying to get him to convince us uh, to confess as much. And uh, so R- Richard Lee Guthrie was part of this Midwest bank robber team that was in this FBI patriot conspiracy milieu that we talked about before. Um, and so the FBI had their snoot in that pie, and they were looking around and trying to see how they could control it. And and um, so that's part of the, that general milieu that McVeigh was steeped in at that time. And there, so the the suggestion is that Guthrie was tied in with McVeigh and what was happening there. And of course, there's more room for FBI informants and others to be involved in the plot. Long story short, as the LA Times reported on July 13th, 1996, suicide rocks white supremacist po- probe. Uh, an admitted member of a, high, a right-wing extremist group of bank robbers was found dead of an apparent suicide Friday morning in a county jail in Kentucky, jolting a growing federal investigation into white supremacist violence. Well, apparent suicide is, of course, the appropriate term. And there was some more documents that that, uh, that came out about nine years ago on this. Intel Wire uh, managed to get the autopsy and death records, the prison records, suicide details, custody records, etc. regarding Guthrie and and Intel Wire characterizes them as being consistent with suicide. But what does that really mean? Well, the interesting part of this story is that it is confirmed that uh, Guthrie did send a letter just six weeks before his death saying that he was uh, planning to write a book about his crime spree. He was also scheduled to testify in the case of one of his associates, Peter Langan, uh, literally days after he committed suicide. Um and he was going to testify about other members of that gang. And so that's interesting, and that's reason alone for us to at least be skeptical about this account of suicide. But add on to that the fact that he wrote in a suicide letter to his brother that he was in the way, and so people were threatening his family, so he had to take himself out of the picture. So even the official story, even officially if it was a suicide, it seems like it was induced by direct threats from someone that he believed was credibly able from the outside to target his family. Who was targeting Why? How did he think these people had that kind of power and access and leverage? All very interesting stuff um, that, of course, goes unexplored in that official suicide narrative. One other interesting piece of this is that the autopsy records make no mention of the tattoo that was one of the identifying marks that was apparently what connected him to John Doe number two and Jesse Tr- and Kenneth Trenadu. So I don't know. I mean, there's a lot to investigate there. And I, I certainly think there's more than ample reason to be skeptical. Uh, again, I'll throw all of those links in the show notes so that you can go start looking at them for yourself and see if uh, perhaps you can dig up some more details. But I think absolutely we have a lot of reasons to suspect even if it was a suicide, it seems to have been an induced suicide through threats. And that seems to have never been followed up by the authorities, quote unquote. All right, let's move on to the next question. Junior Jailbird writes, if you were to sentence anyone or some 9-11 team, who would you draw our attention to? Okay, very good question. Uh, In fact, I answered that question quite directly in a previous edition of the Corporate Report podcast that you may or may not have seen. It was entitled, Who Was Really Behind the 9-11 Attacks? Of course, I'll throw the link in the show notes. And the organizing principle of that podcast was that I was taking a look at Kevin Ryan's Another 19, an excellent must-read book about another 19 suspects, not the 19 alleged hijackers, but another 19 that should be investigated and prosecuted for complicity in the 9-11 attacks. So I used that as the organizing principle for that episode and started taking a look at a few of those 19. I also interviewed Kevin Ryan about his book, so I think those would be good places to start looking at other other people, other organizations, other things, and some that aren't really widely discussed even in the alt media. I'm talking about Kuam Corporation and um, uh, Bernard Carrick and people like this that should be investigated. And uh, I, I would say that this, these, these names and these people and these organizations aren't necessarily the masterminds of this plot, because I think, like in all criminal proceedings, you generally don't start 
right in at the heart and center of the prosecution. You usually have to work your way in from the outside, and as the dominoes start to fall, they start to implicate the people higher up. It's like Capone, of course, went down for tax evasion and not for the other million things that he was involved in. So I think that's the idea. And of course, I'm highly skeptical that this will ever come to light in a court of law, at least under the current uh, uh, prevailing, prevailing paradigm. But at least we can convict these people in the court of public opinion, which may be the most important part. Anyway, I get into all of that in that previous episode of the podcast, who was really behind the 9-11 attacks. But that brings, brings up a related question, I think, from Jay, who writes, After watching your recent video about the origin of ISIS, I thought this could be a good tangent. Could you please comment on the phenomenon of dual U.S.-Israeli citizens at high levels in the U.S. government and major industry? This particularly comes to mind when watching that video in relation to your breakdown of who would be the interested parties manipulating the situation for their own ends. On your list of usual suspects are both the U.S. and Israel. It does seem that there are an unusually high number of these dual citizens at high levels, contrasted with, say, how many dual-cutter U.S. citizens or Turkish U.S. citizens. You see my point. I do see your point, Jay, and I think you're exactly right. I don't think anyone can take a look at the prime suspects uh, in 9-11, like the heart of the PNAC crew that's often cited uh, as being the, the heart of whatever was happening inside the uh, U.S. government to allow and to, to facilitate those attacks. Uh, if you look at that, it's infested with these Israeli, if not dual citizens, at least people who are clearly and on the record uh, in many different ways involved with the Israel government, uh, Faith and, and Wolfowitz and Pearl and Cheney and all of these characters that are tied in with Israel uh, to the uh, at the hip. And in fact, you have Richard Pearl on FBI wiretap in October 1970 disclosing classified information to Israeli officials. And somehow he doesn't end up in jail for that. He ends up even further ensconced in the heart of the U.S. government. I wonder how that works. So, um, yes, clearly Israel has its fingerprints all over 9-11. And uh, again, we see it from all of these types of characters. Uh, in fact, you see F uh, Faith and Pearl were involved in the Clean Break study from 1996, where they were advising the Israeli government how to proceed with their foreign policy, and they advised taking uh, Saddam Hussein out of the picture in order to destabilize Iraq and get it into sectarian violence, and uh, also uh, basically uh, cornering and and uh, uh, and eliminating the the, Sir the current Syrian government by teaming up with Jordan and Turkey to try to destabilize Syria. Well, wow, both of those things have occurred in the last 20 years. I wonder how that happens. So uh, again, these people are very much in the heart of things. You have the uh, dancing Israelis, you have the Israeli art students. Of course, you have Israel connected in with 9-11 every which way um, that you can possibly think of. And it's not even controversial. It's not even a point of controversy that one of the biggest beneficiaries of the 9-11 attacks was Israel. Who says so? Well, former Prime Minister Netanyahu. The Israeli newspaper Ma'ariv has reported Israel's former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has publicly said the September 11th attacks have been good for Israel. Netanyahu said, quote, we're benefiting from one thing, and that is the attack on the Twin Towers and Pentagon and the American struggle in Iraq. End quote. Netanyahu, Netanyahu then reportedly said these events, quote, swung American public opinion in our favor. In the search for means, motive, and opportunity in a crime, it's not often that you have one of the suspected criminals confessing to such right there in plain view in the public, but such is the funny way of world geopolitics in our era. But Anyway, there you go. There's no denying that Israel benefited from 9-11, that multiple people with connections to Israel were deeply involved in the events. There's thousands of data points pointing in that direction. So absolutely, I think we have to look at the ways that Israel and Mossad and the Israeli government and Israeli operatives were all over 9-11. Having said that, I don't think Israel is the only uh, entity that was involved in 9-11. I think it would be naive to think so. And again, I'll say it again, I think that massive events like 9-11 don't occur for one reason and one by one group. I think it's when a number of different reasons from a number of different groups come together that we can see those types of events take place. Just like JFK, it didn't happen with for one reason by one group. There were many different groups that all their interests converged at having JFK dead, so it happened. Um, so again, I think that, yes, we have to look at Israeli involvement, and uh, there's a lot of different uh, uh, cookie crumbs along that trail to do so. 
Uh, let's move on to, uh, again, I think a related question. This one from Craig, a Corbett Report member who left his comment on the last month's edition of QFC. He says, given David Cameron's not-so-veiled threats against the alternative research community comparing 9-11 researchers to terrorists, I would like to ask this controversial question. Should the alternative research community do more to investigate the validity of the so-called Jewish Holocaust, particularly in those countries, like the UK and the US, where it is still legally permitted to do so? I have no agenda regarding this matter, only an extreme suspicion regarding an historical event that is so off-limits that in many countries its mere investigation can have you imprisoned? Well, that's a very good question. And the only uh, umbrage I would take in the way that that question is framed is to presume that there is some, there is an alternative research community as if it is all one monolithic entity. I don't think it is. It's you and me and everyone else who's out there. So I couldn't, even if I wanted to, and I would never presume to, tell that research community what they should or should not be researching. It's not up to me or you or anyone else. It's up to whoever wants to research whatever they want to. But having said that, should they proceed with researching the, the Holocaust or any other piece of history that they have suspect, uh, suspicions about? Absolutely. Yes, of course they should. Should there be laws against them researching or reporting the findings of their research? No, of course there should not. Because as as we all know from Just Sweet Charlie, we know that it's the, one of the fundamental fabrics of our society is freedom of speech, Un, undeniable, unalterable, inalienable, inalienable freedom of speech is just the core of our Western democratic values, right? So no one would ever... Oh, wait, it's illegal in some countries to even question? Oh, oh, sorry. Okay, I guess not. No, clearly that's ridiculous. And if there's anything that we as alternative researchers should do, I think it is we should stand up for those who do question such uh, such historical uh, narratives and uh, their right to do so. Even if they're wrong about their research, I think they still have the fundamental right to conduct that research. So yes, and unfortunately, it's not just that that exists, it's that the clampdown is getting even worse. Even in my home and native land of Canada, which I'm often ashamed to call my home and native land, um, I'm increasingly ashamed to call it so in light of information like this from Press for Truth about the Canadian government's coming attempt to outlaw any speech against Israel as anti-Semitic hate speech. And with a prime minister that thinks criticizing the country of Israel puts you in the same league as Adolf Hitler, well, it's little wonder that the Harper government intends to use hate crime laws against Canadian advocacy groups that are encouraging boycotts of Israel. The targeted groups aren't your typical atheistic communist unions and, and student groups, although there are some of those included, but it's organizations like the United Church of Canada and the Canadian Quakers. It's all part of the zero-tolerance approach towards this loose coalition called Boycott, Divest, and Sanction, or the BDS. Now, when asked about zero-tolerance and what this actually meant and how it would be used and implemented, Public Safety Minister Stephen Blaney replied four days later with a list of Canada's updated hate laws. Now, while the Prime Minister does have direct control over what laws the RCMP should be forcing, more so than others, civil liberty groups are now pointing out that even if a prosecution is made, well, it would require assent from a provincial attorney general and would almost certainly be challenged under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And meanwhile, in Canada, both the federal, liberal, and NDP oppose BDS and they support Israel without question. But what about freedom of speech? What about Je suis Charlie? What about all these things? Oh, of course, that's all a load of hogwash and baloney. And unfortunately, for those who don't know, my home and native land of Canada is shameful in its ridiculous hate speech laws, which allows the government to at least attempt to prosecute people for pretty much anything that the government deems to be offensive in any way. And uh, there's been some egregious examples of that in the past that people can find out about. But uh, but yes, I mean, the if there is any if there's any sliver of sunshine in all of this, it's as Dan Dix points out there, that the government will have to at least attempt to make a prosecution case, and it will be challenged, and uh, there will be a lot of political kickback, if nothing else. So 
hopefully the system can at least stop this from becoming a precedent, but uh, let's not put all our hope in such a thing, especially when the cards are obviously lined up against the people in an argument like that against a government that can presume to prosecute them for anything that it finds offensive at all. And of course, the, uh, all of the free speech Bolognian rhetoric that was passed around in the wake of Charlie Hebdo was completely just hot air and rhetoric. <coughs> and actually, an interesting person pointing that out in the media was none other than Neil McDonald in CBC. I don't know. I've been, I haven't even been looking uh, for his articles, but in the last couple of years, I've found several articles of Neil McDonald that get actually close to the point. So I don't know if people know out there know the story of Neil McDonald, but he really seems to occasionally use uh, the CBC of all places to speak some amount of truth to power. Uh, he had this analysis up uh, in, in the beginning of the year, more state power, not free speech, the likeliest we are Charlie result, in which he notes that Prime Minister Stephen Harper, in his official state of outrage at the Charlie Hebdo attack made no reference to free speech at all, which shouldn't surprise anyone. Canada, unlike the U.S., offers no guarantee of absolute free speech in its constitution. Interesting. Well, again, the upshot of all of this is that, of course, we have to defend and uh, speak up for those who would be imprisoned for researching or reporting on research, even into unpopular ideas, even if they're wrong. In fact, especially if they're wrong. If you're wrong, you should publish your results for the world to see so that we can criticize and uh, and uh, correct what is wrong in that, rather than to suppress it and make it even more salacious and interesting, right? So, yes, of course, people should stand up for anyone who is researching anything at all that they want and want to publish it, it should be allowed. And uh, at the then we, we come in and the open source investigation and see if the argument has merit. So of course I stand by that. All right, let's move on to John, who uh, writes a question about China. He says, James, if it is true that the East's economic incline and their new financial institutions and trading hubs and the West's decline, destruction, is all scripted, I believe it is. Why would the Chinese powers encourage their population to buy gold? Wouldn't they downplay the importance of PMs exactly like the West? An interesting and important question. And certainly China is stockpiling gold, both at the state level and in terms of citizens. Uh, China has become and is vying with India on a year-by-year -year basis uh, for the title of the world's largest gold importer and uh, has bought up a, a, a huge amount of mines, mining operations around the world and secured uh, supply in that manner. Um, they're now reporting a higher level of uh, gold in the Bank of China's coffers. I believe they're reporting a thousand tons in reserve. They undoubtedly have more than that. Um, whether or not they'll ever announce that, they certainly do have more just based on the amount of imports that the country is getting each year. So China is gold crazy at the moment. Um, why are they hyping it? Uh, why are they at least allowing this? I don't know if they're necessarily hyping it, but they certainly are allowing this uh, PM fever, precious metal fever, to go on in, in China. Well, actually, I think that's directly related to this engineered destruction of the West and the rise of China that we've been talking about here on the podcast for several months now, because I think that's part of it. The West is being engineered into its destruction by engaging in this QE craziness backed up by nothing and uh, the move away from precious metals. Oh, those are crazy. You don't want to invest in them. And, uh, and the China and the East is being built up by their reliance on precious metals, which will survive whatever kind of economic cataclysm is going to come up with the monetary paradigm shift that is coming with the eclipse of the US dollar as the world reserve, likely by something like the SDR, which will be a basket that will be decided by, among other factors, the gold backing of the currencies in there, I think. So I think China is just angling for its role in the upcoming new world financial order, and that's exactly why they're stocking up on gold while the West isn't. But having said that, I think maybe an interesting question would be, why then is China engaging in its own QE? And it's not a blatant QE like the craziness going on at the Bank of Japan or the Federal Reserve or the ECB, but it is a backdoor QE that's going on in a number of different ways, including uh, the shadow banking system in China, which the BOC obviously has ultimate control over, which has <coughs> given rise to this incredible credit boom over the last several years. That is the real backing of the, the growth of the Chinese economy in that time, not the uh, ec declining economic production in the, in the world, generally speaking. It's the credit bubble that's been fueling China for the last several years. So um, why is China engaged in that? I mean, if, if they're a part of this up 
rising up of the, the, the developing world as part of this new world financial order, order, why are they also basing it on a, a system that is not just likely to pop, it is going to pop at a certain point. The credit bubble that's coming up in China, in fact, in many ways, is even more threatening to China than uh, the credit bubbles in Japan or the US or Europe are to those respective economies. So, I don't know, maybe it's the hubris of the oligarchs at the top who believe that they can ride this one out. I don't know what's uh, going on with China in that respect, but uh, I think that's an interesting thing to, to contemplate. Why are they setting themselves up for a huge fall as well? Unless it's maybe a world catastrophic economic event that's going to bring about the new world financial order. Anyway, something to talk about and mull over. But let's move on to another China-related question, this time f- from Twitter. At uh, Oni Nohanzo writes, I'm confused about China. I hate what Mao did to the Dalai Lama in Tibet. Your China and the New World Order was intriguing. But there are communists in the U.S. who claim the Great Leap Forward is demonized. Thoughts? Uh, well, okay. First, I'm sure there are communists in the U.S. and elsewhere who dispute uh, the the story of the Great Leap Forward, and more specifically Maoists, who I've heard from some of them, are incensed, outraged. No, Mao was not a mass murderer. No, Mao was 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 doing his best. Well, one thing that no one disagrees with is that there was a massive famine in the late 1950s that killed tens of millions of Chinese. The only question in regards to that is the numbers game of how many people died. Was it 20 million or 30 million or 40 or 45 million? And uh, in fact, if you want to extend it out, there are the others who point out about the number of children who weren't born as a result of the famine. And if you include that, there's a 75 million person deficit in the population. So you can uh, play the numbers game that way. But it is a numbers game to a certain extent there. And we don't have an exact number and we never will, obviously. So all we can do is scry the historical record for it. But one thing that everyone can agree on, there was a famine. It had a horrendous effect on the population, and it was presided over by a communist Chinese party. In other provinces, the shortage of food gave the cadres who distributed it the power of life or death over the inhabitants of the commune. In theory, peasants were entitled to 250 grams per day, but the cadres allocated themselves much more. They were so corrupt that they stuffed themselves shamelessly. Those who didn't get on with the leader of the production team or those who disobeyed his orders were starved to death. He who does not work shall not eat. That is the principle that was applied from 1958 to to 1962, meaning that entire categories of people deemed to be unfit, deemed to be too weak or vulnerable, pregnant women were deliberately cut off from the canteens and starved to death. That qualifies as murder. Were the cadres here very violent? Yes, very cruel. I remember that when they caught some peasants who had stolen some roots from the fields, they tied them up from head to foot. In village number eight, one violent cadre beat several people to death. The collective canteens became a sort of weapon in the hands of the cadres who managed them. I know of many examples, like the case of one man in charge of a collective canteen in a village in the province of Qinghai, who one day summoned a very beautiful woman. She was suffering a lot from the famine, and the cadre asked her how many days it was since she had eaten. And he ordered her to undress. When he saw her naked, he said, why are your breasts shriveled? The woman answered, my chest is now as flat as a man's. The cadre demanded that she bring him her daughter. Her daughter was very young, but she accepted, in exchange for two miserable loaves of bread. She killed herself soon afterwards. Yes, there is no doubt there were some horrific and gruesome scenes that played itself out tens of millions of times across the Chinese countryside between 1958 and 1962. The real question on the table is how much of that is directly relatable to the famines which occur and have occurred throughout Chinese history, and how much of it was the direct result of Communist Chinese Party policy and the policy of Mao particularly. Well, I think it would be as naive and as simplistic to state that the entire Uh, all 
45 million or however many million people died as a direct result of the famine was due simply to famine, as it would be un- un- unfathomable and un- unrealistic to say that all of those people died as a direct result of communist Chinese party policy. I think the uh, obvious point is that there has to be some admixture of the two going on, but how do we sort which is which? Well, the only way we could even attempt to do so is by taking a look at the Chinese government's own records, which it did keep meticulous records of during this period, and the only person who has had really unprecedented access to Communist Party uh, archives is Frank Dikoder of the uh, of a Hong Kong university, and he had, uh, as I say, unprecedented access to Chinese government archives and wrote a book, Mao's Great Famine, the story of China's most devastating catastrophe, where he lays out the case that it was absolutely the uh, Mao and the communists who've greatly exacerbated and made possible the resulting tens of millions of deaths that occurred during the famine. And he points to a lot of different pieces of the puzzle, but one that's interesting that I'll quote directly from the book. Uh, he, He says, Requisitions from the countryside to feed the cities and satisfy foreign clients were drastically increased precisely during this period of in the 1959 or so, in the top-secret minutes distributed only to participants of a meeting held in the Jinjiang Hotel in Shanghai on 25th of March, Mao ordered that a third of all grain be procured, far above previous rates. If you don't go above a third, people won't rebel. Regions that failed to fulfill their procurement quotas should be reported. This is not ruthless, it's realistic. The country had a bumper harvest, and Cadre should study the example of Henan in raising procurements. He who strikes first prevails, he who strikes last fails. Mao made an extra 16,000 lorries, trucks, available to carry out the task. As to meat, he praised the decision taken by Hebei and Shandong to bang, uh, ban the consumption in the countryside for a period of three months. This is good. Why can the whole country not do the same? Edible oil should be extracted to the maximum. He brushed aside an interjection by a colleague suggesting that the state should guarantee 8 meters of cloth per person a year. Who has ordered that? And as we saw in the last chapter, Mao also reversed the priority given to the local market. Exports trumped local needs and had to be guaranteed. We should eat less. A firm and ruthless approach was warranted in times of war when confronting practical problems. Quote, When there is not enough to eat, people starve to death. It is better to let half of the people die so that the other half can eat their fill. And there's much, much more to that story, obviously. But yes, there are documentary records. There is evidence to show that uh, Mao's great leap forward was a great disaster, not just because of a naturally occurring famine, but because of all of the things that were being done to revolutionize the Chinese economy at that time that resulted in copious production of uh, basically unusable uh, pig iron and and steel that was just uh, very, very low quality. A lot of it baked in backyard furnaces and whatever to to live up to uh, Chinese Communist Party quotas. And uh, and uh, at the expense of the production of food, so that absolutely contributed and exacerbated that uh, contributed to and exacerbated the famine problem. And yes, tens of millions of people died. And the upshot of this, perhaps usually we can see the real action and the reaction. The upshot of this is that Mao had to launch the Cultural Revolution to purge all of the people who were complaining about the Great Leap Forward. So I think Mao knew exactly what was happening. And unfortunately, the cult of uh, Mao has been built up so thoroughly in Chinese culture that to this day, a lot of Chinese worship him, but a lot of uh, Russians still worship the Stalinist era. And so uh, people can learn to love uh, their their dear leaders uh, in that version of Stockholm Syndrome, which I'm afraid we are all all too familiar with uh, amongst the Obama supporters or what have you of our current time. Anyway, there's obviously a lot to be said about that, and we could do an entire episode on that, and probably should at some point in the future, but that's just a, a hint in a smattering. And of course, the Maoists will dispute Frank Decoder's work and, and everything that anyone says about this, but uh, examine it for yourself, that's what I'll say. Okay, let's, 
Let's turn to something perhaps a little bit different. Perhaps we've done this before, but we haven't talked about it explicitly yet. Um, This is questions for Corbett, but in this part of the podcast, I'd like to turn it over to the audience in some questions that I think are worthy of discussion because I don't necessarily have the answer, quote unquote. So let's uh, let's look at a couple of questions I thought were interesting and that I'd like to open up for people out there. The first one is uh, an audio message that came through the SpeakPipe application from Jack Dallas. Hey James, this is Jack Dallas. Uh, the question I have for you today regards the new development bank that the BRICS nations are working on, as well as Cuba and the new uh, relations that the United States has opened up with them. I was wondering if you felt that the timing of the opening up of those relations had anything to do with the expansion and uh, the going ahead of the new development bank and whether or not the U.S. was maybe trying to get Cuba out of the way or to sort of prevent them from being a target for the new development bank in the future. So I was just hoping for your thoughts on that. Thanks a lot. Thank you for that question, Jack. And for those of you out there who don't know, I believe this is the real Jack Dallas, aka at real Jack Dallas on Twitter or the real Jack Dallas.wordpress.com. I'll throw the links in the show notes so you can follow him there. And I think this is a good question because it is fascinating what's happening right now with this thawing of relations between Cuba and the US. The question is why is it happening now? I mean, these sanctions haven't made any economic or political sense at any point in the half century or more that they've been in effect. So why end them now in particular? And that's a good question and one that I don't necessarily have a definitive answer to, as I say. So I want to throw it out there to the people in the audience. Let's uh, draw on the crowdsource of, of information and knowledge at your disposal. What do you think? Why is Cuba and the U.S., uh, why are they normalizing relations at this point? And I would be interested to see your responses. And on that very note, let's take a look at another question I'd be interested to see your responses about. Uh, We have this in from Philip, who left, again, a Corporate Report member who left a comment on the last month's edition of this podcast. You've reported in the past about BPA and other health-related issues. I'm curious about, one, what everyday home and personal care products you use. Two, what does the elite use for everyday home and personal care products? And are you aware of any efforts by any by the anti-globalism slash alt-media to investigate what products do they use? Okay, excellent questions. Uh, the first, I guess, answer would be on the personal note. Uh, my family uses an additive-free soap called Awade Detekuru Baby Seken. So for those of you who are interested and can read Japanese, I'll throw in a link to the Japanese product um, so you can read through about this this product and uh we have a lot of organic and additive free types of materials like this and you can see the bottle on the uh the video if you're watching that um in terms of what the the powers that shouldn't be what they use uh i'd be interested i don't know of any effort to document this in any detail amongst the alt media i'd be interested to see the results of such an effort i do know bits and pieces of that puzzle i know that prince charles travels everywhere with his personal chef and his personal organic food products he will make sure not to eat anything gmo and uh, nothing local if he can help it that's an interesting piece of that puzzle or uh, there was that big brouhaha that occurred during the swine flu fake scare a few years ago where the German people were quite incensed to find out that Merkel and certain other government officials were being given a special vaccine that the public wasn't being given. Things like that that uh, show that there's something happening behind the scenes that I believe, just like Catherine Austin Fitz talks about the breakaway civilization in economic terms, I'm sure there's a breakaway civilization in terms of health terms, a healthcare system for people on the inside. So, To a certain extent, I don't think, well, unless there's some sort of insider with inside information, I don't think we're going to get an accurate answer as to what kinds of personal healthcare products these people really use. But maybe there's a few cookie crumbs out there that people can assemble. So I'd be interested to see your guys' take on that. Unfortunately, I'm a bit skeptical about the whole idea of being able to purchase products from any sort of big company that's going to be safe or effective in preventing these types of problems from occurring. So for people who don't know, BPA, for example, was that type of plastic that we just discovered a few years ago. Hey, it's an estrogen-mimicking endocrine disruptor that's uh, that's having all sorts of devastating effects on the human and animal populations. And suddenly we have fish turning female, and uh, they, we have these declining um, male fertility rates in the Western world, and we have all these, these types of crazy effects that seem to be occurring because of these types of estrogen-mimicking compounds like BPA that we suddenly realize 
realized, oh, this this plastic that we've been using to line the the, the lining of food cans and uh, and all of these other things, it's suddenly oh well oh wouldn't you know it? It's uh, it's basically making our estrogen go off the charts and having profound disturbing effects on the development of males. Um, now, of course, it wasn't really a secret because before it was used as the lining of food cans and other such things, it was actually experimented on as a potential estrogen replacement therapy. I believe back in the 1930s they were looking at that. And then somehow or other it ended up completely in the food supply. I guess we could imagine that that's just by chance, or we could imagine that that is the fulfillment of that agenda set out in the next million years by Charles Darwin Galton about, uh, oh, well, we have to... We have to basically um, take care of the, the the young males who would become the leaders in, in all things being equal. We have to take care of them and have to start uh, uh, basically blunting the uh, the sharp knife uh, by whatever means, by injections or whatever. Of course, the diet injections and injunctions of uh, Bertrand Russell fame. So I think it's part of the fulfillment of that agenda. And it's, I mean, there's so many different aspects to that agenda that are really disturbing because not only is it things like BPA that we didn't even really know about and no one was talking about even 10 or 15 years ago, now suddenly everyone knows about it, so they're worried about trying to get uh, non-BPA plastics. But really, it's the question of what what else is out there that's the booby trap that we don't even know about yet? And, uh, and even if we do know about it, can we really resist it? If you touch receipts, the chances are that the, the ink on that receipt was bonded to the paper with some sort of BPA. So you're getting it from all sorts of different things in your environment that no matter what kind of additive-free soaps or whatever you're using, it's not necessarily going to eliminate that. Of course, we can cut down, hopefully, on the amount of things that we're taking into our system, but I'm skeptical about whether we can eliminate it all. And the other thing to say is that I'm not even convinced that these so-called elites, the people that we think might be on the inside, government officials and what have you, are themselves free of these types of influences because it's disturbing if you watch well not disturbing maybe it's actually appropriate in some way but uh but if you watch the congressional testimony of various um people and you see these politicians with diet coke cans in front of them or you uh or even merkel that story about merkel and again the government officials getting the different kind of swine flu vaccine they were still getting a swine flu vaccine for the one of the least deadliest flus to come along in recent years are they really that much on the inside i don't know there's all sorts of levels that could be played there. But it's an interesting question. If anyone has any details about anything along this, these lines and any, any insider information about what products these people might be using, it'd be interesting to hear about. But again, I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic about the overall idea that we're going to combat it that way. But hey, I mean, that's another sign that maybe instead of buying our soaps and things, if we made them, fight club, guys. Okay, anyway, let's move on. Um, Steve. Steve writes... Most of all of your reports and reports from others about what is really going on only leave me feeling disillusioned and angry. However, you maintain a positive and hopeful demeanor. How do you do that? My question is how might I be able to avoid these negative feelings as they are not productive and I am often consumed by them? Do you have any advice for me and I am certain many others? Again, this is a question that I will throw to the audience as well, because I'm not going to be the be-all and end-all of this. I do, I think, have a positive and hopeful demeanor overall, and I'm not sure I can articulate exactly why that is, because it seems to be part of my constitution. But if there's anything I can point to, it's such things as... Perhaps when I was younger, I was extremely shy and learned to combat that shyness by taking the nervous energy that I had and transforming it into productive energy, performative energy, so that I became quite outspoken in things when it came time to do presentations rather than being shy and in a bubble. So I, I, I kind of learned that trick when I was younger, and perhaps there's some degree to which that applies with this information. You can take this on and get pessimistic and get downtrodden and think there's no hope to anything, or you can take that energy, that, that anger that you have, and use it productively to do something about this, to create this information, to put it out there into the world and to uh, get your message out to others, which I've managed to do. And 
there's if there's anything that I can say, it's that success feeds on success. And the fact that I am now reaching more people than I had ever have imagined in my wildest dreams that I would be reaching with my humble little online platform, spreading this information and getting feedback from people on a daily basis that I've changed their, their lives. I've changed their minds. I've changed the way that they actually function in the world. I've encouraged them to start a, a garden in the backyard or things of that nature. That is stuff that I live for. And that really is the feedback that keeps me going. So yes, I mean, like anyone else, I have times when I'm demoralized and I feel oh pessimistic, but I always manage to get back on that horse. And another perhaps uh, a left field kind of aspect to this is I am lucky enough to have a wife who really doesn't care very much about my work at all, which sounds crazy, but it actually keeps me very much grounded uh, in ways that I can actually detune from this when I go spend time with the family. I'm spending time with the family. I'm not talking about these issues and mulling them over 24-7. We are all human. We do all need ways to relax and unwind and take our minds off things. And it's when I'm with my family that I I experience that joy and pleasure that I have with my family outdoors, out in the park, doing whatever, that I can really experience life and remember what it is we're fighting for. Because we can't just dwell on the negative. We have to remember, what is the point of all of this anyway? If we don't have something beautiful and wonderful and hopeful to live for, the continuance of the species and uh, everything that that means on this planet, then what are we fighting for anyway? So if you don't have that underlying motivation, then I don't know how else I could help you. But again, I'd like to open this out uh, to the audience out there. What do you think? What is the thing that keeps you Uh, able to continue functioning despite all of this uh, unpleasant news. And it is unpleasant, and we shouldn't take it lightly. All right, uh, finally, we'll close out with a Twitter question from at WWYork. Is it possible to make annual subscription payment in BTC, Bitcoin? If so, should one simply convert 1,200 yen into Bitcoin? The answers are yes and yes. And yes, of course, I'm happy to provide memberships uh, via annual donations if you want an annual membership an annual donation of at least $12 US, 1200 yen, somewhere in there, and you'll get an annual membership to the website. And uh, if you can do it by Bitcoin, awesome. Please do so. It's much better than using PayPal or a credit card or anything else tied into the regular financial system. Not nearly enough people subscribe to my website via Bitcoin. I wish more people would. I wish more people who complained about PayPal and others would at least look into other methods. It doesn't have to be Bitcoin, but something else. So uh, that's an excellent idea. And if anyone else out there wants to support my work that way, it is much appreciated because as always, the alternative media is brought to you by you. And on that note, we're going to close up the mailbag for another month. That is questions for Corbett for me. I hope to be back in June to answer more of your questions. So please get them in once again, all sorts of different ways, but probably the best way if you are a Corbett Report member, please leave your question in the comment section of this edition of Questions for Corbett. And until next time, we're looking forward to talking to you again. And I'm James Corbett of Corbett Report. Talk to you real soon.